is James Bond, 007, in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bond. James Bond. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action, more danger, and more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond, 007. Seven is on a worldwide manhunt. The body count is going up. And where Bond stops to visit, he leaves his mark on everything. They'll kill you. They will kill us. Love was lesson number two, togetherness. Is that time before we leave for lesson number three? Absolutely. exciting 007 adventure of them all. the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, 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 and hey, hey. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. Of course, I'm your host, Sam Wiles, and thank you all for tuning in to this silly little show. As of right now, I am recording and releasing this next batch of episodes during the UK's second national lockdown. So hopefully that means another month off for me, bringing you more of the show. Gotta stay positive, silver linings and all of that. As always, I am sure you've all read the title. Yes, folks, today me and my guest will be reviewing, assessing, dissecting, inspecting and reflecting upon 1973's Live and Let Die. Of course, many of you will know this as the Roger Moore classic, 
but for the purposes of this show, one certain Paul McCartney may or may not have written and performed the title theme song. Which is an incredibly serendipitous moment when you think about it, because, you know, how fortuitous is it for me as a content creator that one of the most iconic film series, that is one of my favourite film series, also has a theme song written by my favourite songwriter. It was like the time when I found out Tom Waits had written the theme song for The Wire, one of my favourite TV shows, you know, but that's for another podcast, as you know. Of course, Bond is a huge franchise, and I was kind of hoping to do this episode around the release of No Time to Die, the upcoming 25th film in the series, but Corona has delayed that film about as much as it's delayed the Beatles Get Back film. But still, I always have fun doing these slightly esoteric episodes that allow us to talk about other topics. And this is one of those episodes that I knew I was going to be doing when I started the show all those years ago. And finally, I get to do it, you know. I've had a blast re-watching and re-familiarising myself with this film. And I can't wait to ruin it for all of the generations that have preceded me. (laughs) That being said, though, in all seriousness... I am actually recording this intro segment just days after the news of the passing of Sean Connery. Very sad to hear that. Of course, he was the original Bond, the 60s Bond, that set the bar by which all future 007s would be measured. Of course, that's a far worse uh, significant occasion to base this episode around than the jolly release of a new Bond outing. Uh, And, of course, we also lost Roger Moore himself back in 2017, But hey, we still have the work, we still have the art, and, you know, millions of people that still love these movies. And again, that's the most important thing here. Rest in peace, Sean Connery. The order of business today, you know, we're going to keep it simple, the same as the last few episodes. I'll attempt a quick rundown of all of the need-to-know background information on the film and its production, which will then leave me and my guests free to discuss the movie at length and in excruciating pedantic detail. As I hinted earlier, little warning folks, this review may be a little bit more woke or overly sensitive than the average Bond re- like review. Maybe it's a side effect of me speaking with the another kind of mind gang so often, but oh well. So, if any discussions on the subject of depiction of minorities or women in film, or irreverent nitpicky mockery of old-timey cinema isn't up your alley, then this episode might not be for you. But who knows, you might still get a few yucks out of my ill-formed opinions. However, before we can begin our bonding session, as it were, there is the small matter of the housekeeping. Come on. Housekeeping! First of all, folks, yes, this episode was still, in fact, recorded during the awful period when I first got this new microphone that you, my wonderful patrons, bought for me. Uh, And I had this awful habit of touching it and moving it around during the episode. So, yeah, as per last ep, possibly as per the next one, please forgive any muffle scuffles and kerfuffles you may hear. If you want to get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com. I always love reading out your correspondence here on the show. I always want to hear your Paul McCartney stories, whether you've met the man, you've seen him live, you play his music, you know someone who knows someone, you know this obscure piece of trivia that you've never heard elsewhere. I want to hear it. I want to read it out. 
Let me know your thoughts on Live and Let Die, both the film and the song. Are they both a little overrated? Are they both underappreciated classics? And now that my third conversation with another kind of mind is coming up, as always, let me know your favourite and least favourite Paul McCartney album covers and why. That's paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter for daily updates and polls and pictures and all of my silly thoughts, which is at McCartneyPod. That's at McCartneyPod. Check out our blog for some bonus Paul or nothing content at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. If you're enjoying the show, if you like what I've been doing, maybe consider leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you are using, whether whether that's Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Acast, Podomatic, Stitcher, whatever. Every review helps out the show on those strange online algorithms. It boosts us up in the ratings, the rankings. It gives us that exposure. It takes just a couple of seconds, and I'd really appreciate it. If you want to help out the show more directly, though, if you've really been enjoying Paul or Nothing, then maybe consider becoming one of our Patreon patrons. As I'm sure many of you know, you use the internet. Patreon is a service by which monthly donations can be made to independent content creators such as myself for the content. Obviously, I do this show in my spare time whilst doing a full-time job. I'm currently furloughed right now because of COVID. And since I don't put ads in the show, I'm never going to put ads in the show I do rely solely on contributions from my loyal patrons. If you enjoy the show, if you like what I've been doing, hey, maybe consider throwing me a dollar or two down the internet every month just to help keep up with the admin costs, just to help keep the lights running, that kind of thing. But also your patron funds do go into content for the show, including but not limited to films, books, research material, the equipment I'm recording on right now, All of that goes back into the show. And not only that, it also means you get to join the weekly list of shout-outs, my loyal Patreon patrons, Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia P., Robert Carabelli, and then the old guard, Tony Vosal, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips, who you are, of course, about to hear shortly. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. Thank you to everyone who listens. I hope you're all doing well out there. I hope you're all safe and sound. But yeah, not too much to talk about today in terms of the housekeeping folks. Let's just cut right to the live and let die summary. Again, everyone, let's do this in one page or less. So, for the uninitiated, Live and Let Die was a feature-length, light-hearted action spy film released in 1973 and was the eighth film in the official James Bond franchise by Eon Films. It was produced by the owner of the Bond film rights, Albert Broccoli, and his film production partner, Harry Saltzman, who had both been there from the very start with Dr. No, and the film was directed by Guy Hamilton who had already directed both Goldfinger in 64 and the last film in the series, Diamonds Are Forever, in 71. The plot concerns British MI5 super spy fuck machine and mass murderer James Bond and his mission to stop both the evil Dr. Kananga, the dictator of a small fictional Caribbean island, and Mr. Big, a ruthless Harlem drug lord. 
Initially, Bond is brought in to investigate the deaths of three British agents, which leads him to Kananga, and he ends up embroiled in a world of gangsters, corruption and voodoo, as he fights to put a stop to the pair's plot to flood the world with heroin. Along the way, Bond encounters the mysterious tarot card reader Solitaire, of whom he must save from Kananga's clutches. Will Bond be able to succeed in his mission, or will he have to live and let die? The film was mostly, partly, based on the book by the same name, written by Bond creator Ian Fleming, which was released in 1954. In the novel, there is no Dr. Kananga, there is only Mr. Big, and Mr. Big himself is believed to be the reincarnation of Baron Samadhi, which sounds much more interesting now that I think about it. And the scheme of the novel is uh, much less heroin-based and instead revolves around Mr. Big working for the Russian spy network Smirsh to launder some lost pirate gold. And no, I am not making any of that up. After Connery came back one last time for Diamonds Are Forever, he would then go on to decline to return to the role of James Bond, at least in the canon series of films. So, Eon and the Broccolis had to find a suitable replacement to carry forth the franchise. The main frontrunner was a man named Michael Billington, who was screen tested for Bond more than any other actor in history, but they decided to settle on Roger Moore to take the title role. Moore had already been considered twice before, and had gone on to become quite the household name already for his roles on television's The Saint and The Persuaders. Moore's Bond would go on to be decidedly more suave, smooth, romantic and comedic, with less focus on murder and intrigue, and would become the Bond of the 70s, and lasted even longer in the role than Connery did. From a modest budget of around $7 million, the film ultimately grossed an impressive $161.8 million worldwide, which, adjusted for inflation, is about $862 million, which you know isn't you know, $2 billion like some of these comic book movies are today, but it's still very impressive. What is even more impressive, though, is that when Live and Let Die received its television debut broadcast on ITV, on January 20th, 1980, it was watched by a record-breaking 23.5 million viewers here in the UK, which, considering the population difference between now and 1980, that's like a third plus of the country was watching Live and Let Die that day, and still it remains the highest viewed ever broadcast on British television, more than Live Aid, which is crazy. Um, yeah, in terms of England, you know, Moore's Bond has a special place in everyone's heart. You know, we all kind of look away when we are questioned critically about it. I'm not sure if the same can be said in the States, though I know, again, Moore has this incredible fan base. You know, people just love that slightly more um, winking and knowing Bond, you know? In terms of critical acclaim, though, it's not even regarded as one of the best entries in the Moore era, let alone Bond as a whole. But even despite the shift in tone, it is still widely considered to be a strong enough entry after George Lazenby's oft-derided turn in On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 69. 
good enough at least to warrant Moore returning to the role a further six times. Uh, presently to this day, Live and Let Die holds a 65% critic score and a 64% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, again, an, an aggregate, not an average, as well as another aggregate of 6.8 out of 10 on IMDb. So, yeah. So, yeah. Overall, it is one of those classically mediocre classic films that, you know, despite not being the best in the franchise, has you know, wormed its way into pop culture and people's hearts and the the Bond zeitgeist as a whole. You know, it's probably one of the most recognisable and memorable Bond films in the entire franchise, which is pretty impressive considering how many there are. In terms of a new song, Saltzman and Broccoli wanted to take the music of the film in a new direction to fit the change in tone, theme and setting. So, they approached Paul McCartney personally and in a single weekend Paul read the book, wrote the song and quickly performed it with Wings. Paul would also bring back longtime collaborator George Martin to produce the song for him. Of course they hadn't worked together since Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey on the Ram Sessions and due to budgetary constraints or as a personal favour to Paul, I'm not quite sure, Martin's role would be expanded with him ultimately scoring the entire film. Once they had completed the song, both as a studio rock version and with the full orchestral score, Martin and McCartney submitted the song to Broccoli and Saltzman, who at first saw it as just a good demo, like they didn't think it was going to be the final song, and they thought someone else was going to record it. McCartney rebukes that, he fights back against that, and ultimately wins the right to perform the song himself. And for good reason, you know, Paul had good instincts here. Live and Let Die would go on to become the first Bond song to, to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song and went on to reach number two in the charts in both the US and Canada, as well as reaching number nine here in the UK. Of course, Paul still plays the song to this day. And thanks to its second life in pop and rock radio, Live and Let Die has not only become one of the most famous Bond songs of all time, but it is arguably the most famous Wings song. You know, it transcends things like Mull of Kintyre, which is kind of linked uh, geographically, and then it transcends things like Band on the Run, which, if you weren't around, you, you might not have been uh, there for the hype, but everyone knows Bond, and everyone knows Live and Let Die through that, you know? It has a legacy outside of Paul, which is very rare for his songs, actually. But yeah, that's everything I think you need to know about Live and Let Die, the cliff notes, as it were, before we get into my conversation. And without further ado, let's cut to the live feed and bring on my guest. Okay, now that we've got all that out of the way, folks, I think it's high time I put on my tuxedo and brought out my returning compadre. My guest today, folks, is making his long overdue fourth appearance on this podcast. You will likely remember him from our Glastonbury gig review, our look at the Egypt Station music videos, and our episode on Mark Lewison's Hornsey Road live touring show. He's a stalwart veteran of this podcast. He's also joined me on Punnit, at least for one occasion. He's coming on again soon, hopefully. He's a wickedly knowledgeable McCartney acolyte. 
He's a recent father as well. Shout out. And most importantly, folks, he's our longest running Patreon patron. Everybody, please welcome my good friend and friend of this podcast, Mr. Matt Phillips. What's going on, dude? Hi, Sam. How's it going? It's been good, man. I'm finally glad that I'm able to talk about this movie with you today. And I'm, and I'm so lucky that you were so enthusiastic about taking this, this uh, project on. Yeah, well, you know, ticks two big boxes for me, McCartney and uh, Bond. It's a shame to think that the last time we spoke, the film The Beatles Get Back was due to come out in a few months. Yeah, yeah. And now that date has come and gone with the uh, apocalypse. Have you seen all of that promotional stuff announcing the release of the Get Back coffee table book? Yeah, I did see I, I did see that. Interesting uh, that they've decided to do that, really. I don't know whether that was part of the plan all along or whether that's uh, a kind of quick, we need to get some... We need to get some revenue in if the film's delayed by a yeah. year or whatever. I'm not sure, really, yeah. It's like one of those video games where they get you to pre-order just so they can finish financing the actual production of the game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a bit weird. Terrible advert, though. <laughs> I mean, may, maybe they're just trying to keep audience interest up between now and whatever it is, the 31st may- of August when it comes out. Yeah, it may well be, may well be. Um don't know whether I'll be buying it or not. I'm not sure, really. Forty to, pounds, Matt. Forty yeah. pounds on Amazon. It's quite a lot. But you know, I'm a completist and uh. <laughs> start putting money aside now. Yeah, I'm sure your children can go without eating for a day. You know. Well, you know, it's weird though. Like, I wonder if this book would have come out if the Peter Jackson film wasn't even in production. Like, it was just going to be a sequel to the excellent White Album and Abbey Road box sets. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, when the Let It Be came out originally, it came with a, a little book, which, or oh, there was, a, you know, you could buy a box set of it, which came with a book, which mm-hmm. I got the book, actually. What? Everyone um, got this fucking book but me? <laughs> fucking hell. Uh, so I guess maybe it was sort of, you know, it was obviously more well-documented, you know, with photographs uh, as well as the film, you know, maybe more than more so than any, any of their other albums, maybe. So maybe they've got this uh, stash of... Of photographs that they want to share with us yeah more interested to see the film yeah the, yeah the, the <laughs> film really and the, and the take on the film but um it'd be nice to have a little sneak sneak peek at it if i could and see what was in there well luckily i'm i'm so massive in the beetle world that i'm sure a press copy is already on its way you know uh, <laughs> any other recent beetle related purchases oh i got the thrington LP, the, oh, the, the, the vinyl of that. Mm. I got a little Amazon voucher, so I thought, well, I'll treat myself <laughs> to uh, um, to that one. Other than that, I'm trying to think now. Oh, bought a few, just trying to expand my sort of singles collection, really, and and sort of uh, branched out into the wider Apple uh, releases. So I've got um, uh, Mary Hopkin mm. uh, Goodbye single and the you know the the seven inch. And the um, bad finger, come and get it. So two, uh, two McCartney penned songs. They were both released '69, weren't they? Like that was the year when a McCartney was in the charts for like ten months of the year, or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, two, two, you know, two of his um, better, yeah. um, better songs that, that he wrote for others. I think as well. It's true. It's a good point, actually. Um, you haven't been tempted by the uh, Flaming Pie box set at all, though. Well. 
<laughs> the, 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 the problem is now, isn't it, is, is what with Apple Music, if you just want to, oh yeah, that's what I use Apple Music, and, and if you just want to hear what's on the CDs, then, then you can do really, if you've got the subscription, but no, I haven't really um, previously invested in any of the the archive collection box sets, if I had a spare. A couple of like, grand, put, yeah. yeah, exactly. It, it, it is... Uh, it does get to the point where you think, well, you know, like just the, the the upper price bracket seems to be going up and up each time. They are getting better, and the, the, there is stuff in all of them that's worth exploring. Mm. But there's still so much that he doesn't put on them, though. And I'm like, are you just... You know how, like, they probably invented the technology for the PS5 20 years ago, but they have to dish it out slowly so you can make yeah. more money that way. It's like... Is there plans that he could just do a Hot Hits and Cold Cuts release next year, but then he wouldn't have any extra B-sides for the next few archive releases, you know? Yeah. I'm very cynical that way. But um, let's move on to today's episode, because I don't want to bore the fans with going through my uh, singles collection that I've been going through as well. So yeah, something that really got me excited to do Live and Let Die today was your own immediate enthusiastic response. So I want to ask you, Matt... Why do you feel as if you were, and I quote, born to do this episode? Well, I think the two obvious things, really. Obviously, McCartney fan, big fan of, of, of the song uh, in general. And I'm a you know big James Bond fan as well, especially the Roger Moore era. You know, the, those are the ones that I sort of uh, remember watching when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it just, like I said at the beginning, it ticked a couple of... Uh, couple of big boxes for me really i've within the last couple of years i've sort of decided to read all the the ian fleming books as well oh wow um so have you read today's right film? my street yeah i have yeah it, it, to be fair it's been a, it probably because because i read them in order and, and that one I, I think is the second uh the second book mm-hmm. so it was a few years ago now since i've read it yeah, because, um, you know, uh, Quarrel, Bond's uh, assistant who drives his boat for him? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's the son of a character from Doctor No or something it, like that. Yeah, or it could, it could well be the same. Yeah, it could well be the same character. I, I, th- I think he does. I'm sure he, I'm sure he pops up. The, yeah, the, the, the films tend to borrow stuff from, you know, random little bits from various books. Mm. And they sort of crop up in the films. Yeah, um, Felix Leiter has his legs bitten off by sharks in *Live and Let Die* the book, doesn't he? Exactly, and that um, and the the same actor reprises his role as Felix Leiter in um, *Living License, Daylights*. Uh, license to *License to Kill*. I think, it I think the, it's *License to Kill*. It's the one in '89. I'm sure. It, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. It's, I'm sure it's *Living*. I've I've got my info. Hang on, give me five minutes. Hang on, Felix Leiter, *Living Daylights* '89. Yeah. So they um, they obviously uh, they use that scene when he gets uh, sort of eaten alive, so to speak, um, in in that film. Yeah, that's right. Same actor. Yeah. So obviously on this show we do a lot of uh, baseline questions to kind of see how everyone is. Obviously we're not talking about the Beatles today. So Matt, what is your favourite Bond film? Oof, um, it's probably. It's probably a view to a kill, which I know a lot of people Ooh. kind of don't rate very highly, but it's my favourite film. It's been on about three hundred times this year. <laughs> and I and I see every time I turn on the telly, it's like, Oh, View to a Kill's on again. I'll watch it again then. But yeah, that, that that's probably my favourite one. I just 
I just in, enjoy it. And that's one of Dalton's ones, right? Uh, no, no that, that's Roger Moore's last film. Oh, okay. So yeah, so that was the last one before uh, The Living Daylight. So do the Moore films get better then? Uh, not to uh, give spoilers for my <laughs> opinion today. Um, they, yeah, they kind of, they kind of reach a peak. Uh, the, the, the general consensus is they sort of reach a peak um, around The Spy You Love Me and then, and then kind of tail off and, and get slightly ever more, you know, Wacky. camp and ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, a bit like that. And obviously, you know, in a view to a kill, Roger Moore is, uh, I think he's, he's nearly, he's not far off being 60 in it. So <laughs> it, it, it does kind of, um, yeah, it, it does kind of get a little bit ridiculous. But, you know, I, I, I enjoy those aspects of it as well uh, is what uh, it makes it for me as well. I like the, the cheesiness. I feel like I'm going to, because the demographic for this podcast, I'm very well aware about half of it are people like over the age of 40. So I know that my opinions on the Bond franchise are probably going to stir up a lot of uh, annoyance today. My favourite Bond film is and always will be Casino Royale. I'm afraid, uh, which, yeah, no, which, which is blonde Bond, it's super violent, Jason Bourne Bond, but it's the one that kind of legitimised the franchise for me a bit. I've never been a big fan of comedy action, and I remember watching Spectre, and there's that fantastic opening sequence during the Day of the Dead in Mexico, because every single movie has to feature Day of the Dead at the moment, because of the makeup, which is the most popular thing ever right now. Um, and it's a really good opening action sequence, and like Bond's fighting on the roofs and stuff. And then he falls, and he lands on a sofa, and it is <laughs> literally a joke taken out of a Roger Moore Bond foot night film, and it took me right out of it. I mean, I remember when I watched Dunkirk uh, last year, I accidentally ended up watching Saving Private Ryan the night before, and that ruined the whole filmic experience for me. And unfortunately, Matt, I ended up watching Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery the night, <laughs> of, the night before I watched this. Oh my God, <laughs> it totally lampooned that entire film. You know, judo chop, and all of you come at me one at a time slowly, or the... Uh, easily escapable trap with one inept guard you know all of these things exactly yeah it's got it's got the big you know it's got the shark scene hasn't it the, uh, <laughs> lift which is literally you know lifted direct from uh, live and let die so what's your least favorite bond oh film um yeah, that's an interesting one because i don't mind you know I, i'm not i'm not one of these uh you know po-faced Haters, oh, of so, yeah, you don't, you don't, you know. I, I, I do, I do like the, the, the Daniel Craig ones, but I would have to say, God, that's a difficult question actually. Probably one of the, probably one of the Brosnan. Oh, like the world is not enough, or can, tomorrow never yeah, dies. Yeah, one of them, which I just, I just don't really, um, I never really. Uh, Golden Eye is, is is a film I've sort of grown to enjoy, but I, I guess I just before. Brosnan kind of came into the role. I I was such a, you know, Roger Moore was so cemented in my mind as James Bond that I I, I didn't I never I don't think I ever really accepted Brosnan <laughs> um, as being James Bond, and I kind of didn't really, really that interested in watching the the films probably when they came out. So those are the ones I kind of least, um, yeah, um, have a connection with, I suppose. 
you will see this with every Bond fan. Whatever Bond you watched first, that is your Bond. And I mean, I cannot imagine the stress Roger Moore would have been under. It would like a modern allegory would be like someone taking over the role of Iron Man or Captain America in yeah. the Marvel films, like roles that have been clearly cemented by two actors. And it, I'm glad that it's not the exact same Bond. We're gonna we're, we're gonna get in get into this later, but. The transition probably wasn't as smooth as everyone would have wanted. How would you describe the current state of the Bond franchise? I mean, are you looking forward to No Time to Die? Not not especially, you know, I'm not super excited, but I, I do think it's time for a change. I, I actually wonder whether... There was a thing that came out a while back when kind of, um, uh, I think... I don't know whether it's just rumours, but like Quentin Tarantino was kind of rumoured to have been interested in directing a Bond at one point, and and his take on it was going to be that he wanted to to do it as a period piece and kind of take it back to mm. the nineteen sixties, and and I kind of feel that that might have been a, a better thing to do rather than kind of keep going down this thing where the plots are getting, you know, you either have to make it really really believable. Mm-hmm. Or like totally, you know, slightly unbelievable, and just accept that it's a fantasy kind of spy film. And I think it's kind of in a weird limbo at the moment, where I, I don't, I don't really buy that this is happening. But at the same time, it's not quite fantastical enough to mm. to sort of capture my um, imagination. If you know what I mean. I think they peaked with Skyfall in terms of the modern Bond plots. Yeah. Because it basically is just the Dark Knight again. And obviously the Bond franchise does borrow heavily off whatever's popular at at the time. That's what the the Broccoli's like to do. I guess I feel like a big problem with Bond villains at the moment, and we're going to get onto villains uh, shortly and the insensitivities of the Broccoli family's handling of a lot of these uh, villains... Since in the modern world, everyone's kind of realised that you can't just say, oh, he's from another country, he's the villain. That's led to a, a lack of like creativity on the part of the writers. So now, villains in pretty much all franchises are either agents who are already on your side who have turned rogue, or they're like uh, wealthy 1% businessmen. Or, you know, someone trying to control, you know, surveillance. Like, it's always about surveillance yeah. now. Yeah. And it's like, come on, can't we have a, a guy in a big base again? But then when Spectre does that and they put the big guy in the base, it's it's laughable. Like, when Daniel Craig and Leia Sadu are running around the desert, like, shooting henchmen, I'm just thinking, where's all the paperwork for this place? Like, how did he yeah, build yeah. this? Like, what's going on? It's borderline uh, the laser satellite from Dino the Day. And, and the thing is, I think, you, you know, you, you did have a kind of a situation a few years back with, don't want to get too, too uh, serious on the puppet, but, you know, with ISIS and things like that, where, mm. like, kind of, that, that was kind of, like, as close as you might get to, like, a real-life smirch or, or something like that. Um, but, but it was probably too... You know, to, to to have had something, not parody in that, but you know, something analogous to to ISIS would would have might, might have even been too kind of serious, and you know, even for the Bond yeah. franchise, perhaps that, that's probably the, the, you know, if it's starting to get involved in kind of because a lot of the you know the, the original, um, certainly the original books, a lot, a lot of it is kind of you know, there's some some elements of like Cold War. 
creeping into it and and a, a lot of the films do have kind of an art you know this i think uh, an arms race or you know a super weapon and that kind of thing you can't have china as the villain because they are the largest uh, exactly. cinema market and they won't exactly. and that's why ghostbusters bombed because it couldn't play in china and then you can't make the russians the bad guys because they will literally poison the staff they will kill you like putin will come around and yeah. put and put some radioactive material in the broccoli's broccoli and north korea will threaten to bomb you and then uh, yeah. that's what happened with the um the interview wasn't it the, oh, yeah. wow, i've thought about that film in five years that was that, yeah. was, that was probably the last vestiges of the foreigner is the villain i guess you know mm. and we're going to be seeing that a lot with the villains today and i cannot wait to talk about how problematic this film is but yeah let's talk about the roger moore era this is a bond that is very much post connery post lazenby in the way that a mccartney album is desperately trying to do something different and distance itself from the last failure as it were uh we get a more that is well, the production company is making these very weird changes, like superficial differences to Bond's character that really mm. shouldn't make a difference. Like, we don't have the vodka martini. He has um, a whiskey and ice, which is book accurate, if I'm correct. That's what he actually drinks in the novels. We get no tuxedos, no cigarettes. There's no classic guitar riff, which we're going to get into it shortly as well. We don't have a Q scene or any scene at MI6 headquarters, for that matter. And all we get is him saying the name's Bond, James Bond. I don't know why they bothered with that. I re- <laughs> I really don't. Yeah. yeah, I was going to bring it up. It is, it is kind of a strange thing where, you know, if it weren't for the fact, if it weren't for seeing M and Money Penny at the beginning, and you could kind of swap out the James Bond character and you wouldn't know it's a James, you know, there's nothing in there to to let you know at all that it's a James Bond film, really. Generic spy um, man. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't have any of those signature moments, uh, or even, they don't seem to be able to even establish any of James Bond's character. Or I don't know whether we're just meant to, you know, they're meant to assume that we're, we know the character from previous films, but, you know, there's nothing really about, seemingly, that Roger Moore is bringing... Yeah, my impression was that they're trying to make him certainly a lot more light-hearted and less serious. Because even the moments of darkness he does have are very few and far between. He doesn't have much of a body count either. Like, he doesn't fire the, no. the wolf of PPK once in this movie. I know Moore wanted to play up the ridiculousness of, like, a world-famous spy and how a world-famous spy doesn't make any sense. But it just leads to the sense that this movie is horrendously unfocused in what it wants. A podcast I was listening to rather aptly described more as a lover, not a fighter. And he does seem to spend more time chasing skirt than he does like beating up bad guys. Yeah, definitely. And going back to the books, I suppose the the, the one thing that the, where the books are slightly different is that you do get a lot more of the sense of bonds of, of the character. Mm. You know, it, it does go it does go a bit, a bit more in depth into just kind of painting the picture about you know, his like is his lifestyle, I suppose. Well, I think it's too scared to trust the audience. It's like, uh, <laughs> this is Bond, here's his mission, just go, just get out there, go to America now! Let's just get the ball rolling. Yeah. It would have been nice just to have at least one scene before the debriefing, but, you know, alas. I mean, my dad always raved about Roger Moore, like, that was his Bond. And I, I did some research, 
And my dad was born in 59. So in 73, he would have been 14 when Live and Let Die came out. Yeah. And I was 14 in 2006 when Casino Royale came out. There you go. So 14 seems to be the prime age. <laughs> well, that's the thing, because I, I should be. I mean, I, I was I would have been 14 in 96, so that was the year after GoldenEye. But So I, I should really be a Brosnan fan, but I think it was just I, I'd go to the uh, the video uh, shop and, um, and, and, and we'd be picking out, you know, the videos of whatever happened to me there. And it just happened to be the Roger Moore ones that, uh, you know, the, the front covers appealed to me and uh, that he sort of became my Bond, really. Great poster for this movie, I must admit. It's definitely in that classic Bond style mm. where everything's explosive and watch out and there's babes, yes. Let's talk about this in terms of screenwriting and direction and production, though. Matt, would it be fair for me to call this at best unfocus and at worst completely all over the place in terms of its like tone and genre? Yeah, I think so. There was times when I kind of felt that... I haven't seen it in a while, and it's, it's certainly not among my favourite, um, you know, Roger Moore films or, or you know, my favourite Bond films, really. And it kind of felt like I was watching an, two episodes of like a TV series back to back or something like that. That's that crazy that you should say that. My my friend Danny was watching it with me last night, and he said this feels like Miami Vice or Knight Rider or something like that. Yes, yeah, no, exactly. And whether, yeah, like I said, I don't know whether that was a conscious sort of decision at the time, but it, there are elements of it which were a bit more more realistic in some ways. I, you know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say gritty, but I mean, even the villains aren't, you know, these, um, it was relatively believable motives, I suppose. But yeah, it's kind of like, it was a bit all over the place. And, and it, some, sometimes it was kind of hard to, know why you're kind of rooting for bond and what the stakes are really there's no shot to show the effects of like heroin on the ghetto or anything like that to give bond a bit of a a human side as to why he's doing he's just doing what he's told essentially yeah maybe a bit like i know it sounds really formulaic but like just a scene where bond sees like a kid on the street whose mum's like whacked out of her mind on heroin yeah it's totally not very bond but if you're making the villains plan to sell heroin, then you, you've got to double down a little bit, you know? No, definitely. Or, you know, or, or at least some, OK, he, he, he supposedly falls for um, solitaire, you know, but, 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 but even that doesn't really give it the kind of um, the emotional stakes. And it's difficult at any point, really, I, I find, to become invested. Hasn't, hasn't Bond already been married by this point as well? In, in the, yeah, in the kind of film order... Yeah, it kind of broadly follows the canon where he got his wife uh, was sort of killed in on a Majesty's Secret Service. So it, it kind of does broadly follow that because there is a reference made to I can't remember which film it's in, but that um, I'm sure Bond visits um, okay. his, uh, Roger Moore's Bond visits his wife's grave. What? Oh my gosh! I've, I'm going to Google that the moment we're done. Uh, uh, yeah, I, thought, I hope I'm getting that right, but. Um, it's kind of this weird thing where it kind of the half going along with the films are in order and canon and half not kind of thing. Well, isn't that one of the great failings of the uh, Daniel Craig Bonds? When I first watched Quantum of Solace, I was like, "Ooh, this is picking up right where the last film left off." Hopefully, it's mm. hopefully it's written really well. And oh no, that there was a writer's strike, yeah. and they couldn't delay the film. So Quantum of Solace is essentially 
treading water for two and a half hours. Yeah. Uh, until the next film, which completely skips over the plot of the last two movies for its betterment, and it just makes it this own self-contained narrative, which all the best Bond films are. And then Spectre. Oh, fuck me. Like, what, Colonel Hans Lander was pulling the strings the last three films? Mm, I don't believe it. I don't believe that Le Chiffre and Silver were all connected by Blofeld. Like, oh, it was such a letdown. Sorry, folks, this isn't an excuse for me to bitch about Spectre, <laughs> but legitimately I wanted to leave the cinema. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, yeah, it, it does kind of make you think, well, you know, they could have come up with that premise at, at the beginning and made it work better if they'd, if they'd have done it that way rather than it has clearly been retconned or, you know. Yeah, it's Star Wars syndrome. Think about your trilogies beforehand. Marvel does it. And they are perfectly interconnected. But, you know, now I feel like Daniel Craig's going to go, ooh, I haven't seen Jaws in a while. It's like, whoa, what are you, what are you talking about, Daniel Craig? You've never met Jaws. <laughs> but, yeah, so t- genre. This is a James Bond film, say, about 50%. It's 20% supernatural adventure and then 30% straight-up black exploitation movie. Yeah, and this is probably just a little a little bit of a trigger warning, but we're, we're going to start discussing heavy themes of uh, problematic racism and stuff like that, and black exploitation and black representation in cinema, because you cannot discuss this film without going into that. And Matt, as best as two pasty white men from England can talk about this subject, you know we need to address this. The film has not aged well politically at all. You know what, let's start with the least offensive stuff, the humour. This is probably the most nitpicky of all, because, you know, humour is subjective. But for me, this film falls incredibly flat with the premises of all of its jokes and the execution. Uh, In particular, when we come to meet Sheriff J.D.W. Pepper, the comic relief, I just find the film interminably boring to sit through. And, like, you're just begging for the action scenes to, like, pick up again. Did you laugh out loud the last time you watched this at all? No, I can't say I did. And I think, I think, yeah, I, I wonder whether or not that character was like inserted in during the production of the film because they kind of realised, or not really, whether they thought, well, it's not really very funny, or they thought it needs some some something just to kind of pick it up a bit, or because because there are moments in the film where it, it kind of feels like it's starting to drag a little bit. Here's my theory. They were watching the rushes and I thought, oh my God, we do not make black people out to be very good at all in this movie. We need the most stereotypical offensive portrayal of a white person to kind of balance it all out a bit. Like, look, look, we're not, we're not offensive. Look, J.W. Pepper, he's an idiot, right? But it's like, it does not balance out the fact that every single villain in this either lives in some sort of voodoo cult or in Harlem as either a pimp or a drug dealer or a prostitute. Um, We have voodoo witch doctors with goat's heads on their head that they're holding snakes. They're all dancing and humping poles and stuff. Hell, even the entire population of San Monique and everyone in Harlem apparently is a villain. And, you know, you can tell the studio's going, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're creating roles for black actors. But they do it in the classic way that only old white filmmakers can, by making the most troublesome portrayals possible. Like, like I know there was a lot of fuss about, ooh, you know, 
Bond meets uh, Ro- was, was it Rosie? Her name is. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, she's the uh, CIA double agent who's also secretly working for Kananga. Spoiler alert for a 1973 movie. And yet, Bond does have have a a little tete a tete with a black lady, but she's a traitor to Bond. She's the sacrificial lamb, and she's not the real object of desire within the lens of the movie. It's it's the skinny white woman who Bond steals away from a black man and it just all of this together I know that on the surface none of this is problematic but once you start looking at portrayals and how people are meant to feel when they watch this like I wouldn't be surprised if in the next 50 years they would stop showing this film on TV yeah it's um obviously it certainly wouldn't get made in that way today Mm -hmm. and it's one of those things where you kind of all the you know the fact that it's a sort of an early 1970s the all the ingredients are there to kind of make it problematic i I think and you know roger moore's the whitest man ever in this yeah yeah that's what i think like i was saying earlier about like you know what are the stakes it comes to point where you think well is it is it that are we meant to be rooting for bond because he's the white guy and um, you know he's he's the white guy surrounded by all these black villains it could be coded that way subconsciously yeah. yeah then again i sort of part of me looks at it and thinks well you know it could have been handled worse in the sense that okay kind of put aside the fact that they're the the, the black the villains are black in this film the characters themselves don't necessarily rely on that too much in the way of kind of negative racial sort of stereotypes the the, the, the characters no like the, um, the, the, you know the dialogue itself, yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, they're, there's they you know they're, they're pretty let's say don't particularly think they're sort of well-rounded characters or anything like that but but they're not um there, there's no point at, at which you kind of think that bond feels that he's superior necessarily to 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 to, oh, to, no, no, to, no, to no, live in no, yeah that's what yeah yeah it's it's None of it comes from Bond. None of it no. comes from Bond. It comes from the filmmakers yeah, sure. and the script. Yeah. I mean, like, even when you find out that the, one of the writers or the producers originally wanted Tina Turner or, like, Diana Ross or something to play Solitaire, and the fact that that idea was immediately shot down, and the fact that the actor who plays Kananga was, dis, was not encouraged to come to the premiere because they were worried about how people would respond to a black villain... You know, it's impossible for me to ignore the fact that there there are issues behind the camera mm. that are problematic. Like, just look at Daniel Craig's Bond. There are rumours that Idris Elba might play Bond, which is fantastic. They've they've changed a lot of the races of a lot of the supporting cast, so it's not just this big white sausage fest anymore. And even in the new film, No Time to Die, I think we do have a 007 who is a black lady. Mm which I know upset a lot of the fucking old gammy that watches James Bond. And that's probably the reason why Tom Hardy will be the next Bond and Idris Elba won't, unfortunately. But let's move on to gender politics, because they've never been the best bedfellows with the Bond franchise. But uh, how old's Roger Moore? 45 in this? Getting on that way, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Jane, you'd never tell. He does look good, I must admit. He does look good in this role, but Jane Seymour is 23 years old in this. And there's a scene when Bond breaks into her complex and she has a legitimate belief in tarot card reading. She believes in the cards. So what does Bond do? 
he gets a bunch of cards that all say the lovers on them and he turns them over so she can't tell that so no matter what card she draws she will draw the lovers and that's how he beds her and deflowers her as well he actually takes a virginity in this as well now i'm not saying this is as awkward as daniel craig seducing a known child sex slave in skyfall or uh, connery telling a girl to leave because it was time for a man talk um but still i found that scene to be particularly troublesome to sit through i was like no james don't do it just just leave her alone just save her you don't have to bed her <laughs> And it's stuff like that that I can tell Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to write out of the next film, which I'm totally fine yeah, with. Yeah, there is a bit as well where um, he, when he's on the boat with a rosy character and she's portrayed as this kind of um, ditzy, you know, despite the fact that she's, um, you know... Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. She, she's, she's portrayed as this, this dit, you know, clumsy, ditzy uh, woman. And I think um, Bond makes some uh, disparaging remark and gives her a slap on the behind um he yeah, does i saw yeah. that i was like <laughs> no um just the, the, going back to rosie for a sec do you think that her ditziness is a real part of her character or is that part of the ruse to lull bond into kananga because she 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 fucks up the location of where kananga is she's like oh he's in the cliffs and then bond's like i thought you said he was in the cliffs uh yeah he's in the cliffs uh down there and it's like Bond sees through her straight away and she doesn't even attempt to like <laughs> play it cool or anything like that. She's a terrible yeah. spy, I yeah, think. Yeah, possibly. And then what does Bond do to extract information from her? Uh, he gives her an orgasm and then he puts a gun in her face and says, I will shoot you if you don't tell me where Kananga <laughs> is. And then she says, James, you wouldn't do that. Not after what we just did. And do you remember what he says, Matt? Yeah, go on. Well, I certainly wouldn't have shot you before. <laughs> oh, a nice necrophilia joke in your 1970s James Bond movie. How delightful. First and foremost, though, Matt, the Bond franchise is one of action and involves a lot of stunt work. Did the death-defying stunts in this film have you on the edge of your seat at all? There was certainly, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think they skimped on the stunt budget or, 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 or you know the, the sort of action budget the, the the kind of the the chases did drag on a bit but but they seemed um well i was gonna say they seemed realistic but i'm not sure i've seen too many speedboats that can travel on land um <laughs> before there's no cg they actually do yeah yeah no 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 it's uh yeah the more i suppose enjoyable aspects of the film was the stunts but it took a while to took a while to get going i felt what's more overrated the corkscrew car jump in the man with the golden gun or running across the backs of the crocodiles Ooh! because both of those stunts like our dad's generation will talk about it like it was landing on the beaches of normandy or something like it was the most intense thing ever sam he ran across these crocodiles backs it was amazing and, <laughs> and then you watch it and it's blink and you'll miss it it's like yeah. it's like it's like a second and a half of film well, I think yeah, that there was. They always show this clip, don't they, of the, the guy who ran over the crocodiles and uh, um, the real life Mister Kananga, yeah, yeah, the, the bit, and, and they kind of nearly get sort of bitten by one. I don't know. I think the uh, the corkscrews, the better, are the more impressive for me of the, of the two. Uh, oh. With the crocodiles, they may as well have just used fake crocodiles, and they, you, you, the audience isn't going to know the difference. Well, if the audience couldn't tell that that snake in the opening scene wasn't fake. 
<laughs> but yeah. I'm sure we'll come to that snake show. Probably doesn't benefit from high definition uh, televisions nowadays. I noticed that as well. There's Could a lot of see like, the price tag on it. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you can see physical makeup on people's faces, almost like you're watching the 48 frames a second Hobbit films or something. <laughs> it's like, ugh, my God. And uh, you can definitely see some uh, touch work on Roger Moore's face as well around the eyes and stuff like that. You can definitely see it. Yeah. Just going back to the action, I don't think any of the shots or their composition or the ideas or their execution are bad at all. It's the editing that really lets this film down during the action scenes. I think I think that boat chase is about forty-seven years long, if I'm <laughs> if I'm correct. Yeah. And forty-six years of it has no score either. Yes. Yeah. And it's just all you hear for like genuinely, folks, like ten minutes, all you hear is, mm, and when that happened in Bullet in like nineteen sixty-eight, and they're driving around San Fran, yeah, that was that was great, but the environment doesn't change in a river chase. And the only real things that happen are they jump and they slide across the land a lot. Like The stuntmen loved that trick. And of course, we Bond d- disrupts a wedding as he always does. That is one of the few times that I did. I did get a little smile when that happened. I was like, yeah, it, it, you know, Bond has to ruin something when he's on one of his chases. But the editing and the way it's all cut together and the way it's intercut with the JDW Pepper uh, sheriff stuff is it's so sluggish. Like, you could imagine a modern editor or, you know, Tarantino's one, Sally Mink, you could imagine her taking a big red pen to most of this movie. Be like, cut that out, cut that out, cut... Like, you could cut the sheriff out of the chase scene and it wouldn't affect the movie at all. Yeah. It would just be that's an intense chase that's scene. One, that's one thing I think that does get better with the... Uh, definitely, the, there's a, a chase scene in The Spy Who Loved Me, which is uh, a lot better in terms of uh, keeping the viewer interested. Yeah, I mean, how much better would this film have been if after Bond had jumped over the crocodiles, he launches into a huge Union Jack parachute, you know? That's uh, that's how yeah. every Bond action sequence should end, regardless of whether it takes place high up or not. I, I did love the fact when the, when the crocodile starts walking into the, um, into the kind of... Uh, the, the drug factory. Uh, yeah, the drug building next to it, as if they've never... Uh, they, they, had that they, problem they, before yeah yeah they never <laughs> considered that having a factory next to a crocodile farm would uh, uh you know maybe try and uh have a set of double doors or something <laughs> or just I, 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 I don't know a two foot high barrier that a human can step over <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely the uh, jurassic park uh, field of design you know shall we just put the dinosaurs 10 feet down so they can't get out nah put them at ground level it'll be <laughs> fine Another part of this movie, though, in terms of action, is fight choreography. Now, Matt, could Roger Moore's Bond confidently take on John Wick or Jason Bourne, do you feel? Well, um, I, I like to think of Roger's as, as, as a bit more more kind of ballet, his, uh, his style of fighting. <laughs> there's, def- there's definitely a, a kind of... When you look at it and you think, oh, he's been schooled on the stage. <laughs> Yeah, I bet stage fighting rather than uh... it's the kind of fighting that that looks good when you're watching a play from fifty feet away. But like, I'm not sure how much of the lack of fisticuffs in this film is down to wanting to make Bond more family friendly. But another part of me thinks 
is there just no decent stunt coordinator on set? Like, none of the fight scenes are choreographed at all. The big showdown with Baron uh, Samadhi at the end, you're like, oh, shit! It's like, you, um, you know that bit in Indiana Jones when he yeah. fights the swordsman in the street? Like, oh, this is going to be building up to, to something big. And I don't mean it was going to build up to just Bond shooting him for comedy effect. I mean, oh, you know, Bond's threw his gun down. He's got a machete. It's a machete-on-machete fight with the big bad and then Bond like blocks one blow, punches him in the ribs, and then just lightly pushes him in a coffin, and <laughs> and uh, and the snakes somehow kill him in yeah a second. Like very fast acting venom these snakes have in this in this movie. Yeah, Bond. Well, maybe he's just you know let, let the snakes do the hard work. <laughs> there wasn't even a snake pun though. No, there has to be one. I'm going to try and think of one by the end of this episode. I hope that coffin's not too constricting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- uh, we do get some good Bond quips in this movie though we do indeed but um, you know what let's just get back to the fact that this is a Paul McCartney podcast for a bit there is a certain song by a certain ex-Beatle that we need to discuss of course the film's title track theme song Bond song whatever you want to call it it's called Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney and Wings when you were young and your heart was an old to say first oh good question i reckon i reckon i probably saw the film first yeah obviously became aware of the song through the film but i definitely definitely would have seen the film first i would have thought yeah this is what so to our american listeners um we have bbc one and two which are our main channels and then you've got like channel four and five whatever but then the kind of main competitor to the bbc is itv and itv has lots of spin-off channels mostly uh, itv two and three very simple names and my god every single night at seven o'clock on one of those two channels you will get either the mummy the lost world jurassic park never the first one or a bond film and they're on every single night because 
people, you know, Bond films are great to have on in the background, I guess. And I must have seen the film first. I'm sure I would have seen the film first. I'm like, everyone through osmosis will hear the song. But it wasn't until I got my copy of Wings Greatest at university before I really like absorbed the song. But I also would have heard a reference to this song, though, because I was a big Simpsons fan even then. And obviously, uh, in Lisa the Vegetarian, which we've covered on this show before, go and check out that episode, Apu, uh, a character who is no longer on The Simpsons, confuses the title for Live and Let Live. And Paul's like, no, no, it was called Live and Let Die. Whatever! <laughs> it had a good rhythm. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I've got a memory of watching this film. It would have been the early 90s even being on BBC two or something like that on a Saturday afternoon. I'm pretty sure I, I do have a memory of watch sitting down and watching it because I think I'd, I'd seen the, some of the other Roger Moore films, but not this one. So yeah, like you say, it's one of those things that just seeps into the consciousness over time, isn't it? I don't think I've ever watched a Bond film at night time. They are always on in the afternoon. They are that prime, like, Oh, I've just had my Sunday dinner. I've had a lot of roast potatoes and I'm going to fall asleep to Moonraker. Definitely those kind of films. But yeah, let's uh, let's cut let's cut to the chase, Matt. What are your thoughts on the 1973 single "Live and Let Die"? Well, I think Paul basically nails the brief in every respect. I think I think it's personally probably the best Bond theme. Wow, you, in my opinion, and I know that's you know, and I think it's one of his best solo songs. I think I, I, I think this is him at his best. You know, right into a right into a to a brief yeah someone else's idea I feel like I'm going to upset everyone again because <laughs> um, I've got to get this clear the Guns N' Roses cover of Live and Let Die is infinitely better than the McCartney original oh. and I do oh. a Paul McCartney podcast I did used to I did used to I, I would have agreed with you for you know uh, th- there was a period of time where I, I was of the, the opinion that oh this is the Guns N' Roses is, is clearly better but I don't know. There's something, whether it's with time or what, which where I I, I just uh, prefer this one. I'm all about that Axel Red Rose Speedway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, do you not feel that? Like, okay, live. I totally agree with you. When I was there in London and all the explosions and the pyrotechnics go off, I was more excited and had more of a rush then than I did during the entirety of this film. But the version you hear in the film is a completely different mix than the single and the version that's on Wings Greatest. And I feel like it's got a less intense production to it. Like, I can't I feel like there's a lot of open space in the song and it should be more epic and loud. And it ends, like, you, you know that really powerful trumpet line in the background with the, you know, with the bongos at the end, it's going, it goes, like that. And it's, it's really building and building. That's not in the film. It's quite a subdued version of the track. Yeah, and I was I was going to say, I wonder if they, it was my imagination, or it seemed like it was sped up a bit in the in the opening sequence. Those opening piano lines are quite quick, aren't they? Yeah, dum 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 dum. Like it, it it's about half a beat quicker. You are you are right. Like. It's not inappropriate for a Bond film to have a rock tune. Just look at songs like You Know My Name or Another Way to Die. But I guess here, it's slightly out of place. Maybe it's just like Jet, you know, and it's a simple case of it being overplayed too much. Because this is one of the few Bond songs that has a life outside of the film, which is really interesting. This is still a staple. 
of pop, rock and classic radio. But when you hear the story that director Guy Hamilton heard the Live and Let Die recording went, yeah, that's great for a demo. I kind of know what he was talking about a bit. It's a great song. I don't think it's a good Bond song, though. Uh, well, I got to disagree. So I'm sorry, mate. Well, I, I think I, I, I think I reckon that that kind of that story more came from the fact that previously Bond songs had very much been, you know, a particular type of genre and a particular type of singer and and they would have had a song written for them and and i i don't know i just i just wonder whether or not there was maybe just a, this bit of an old-fashioned view that oh paul mccartney's going to write the song oh, okay great well you know assuming that someone else is going to sing it just because up until that point nobody had mm. approached a rock i, I don't know i i think he, it was a bit of a turning point for bond songs in a way and I, and I I don't know they've gone. Oh yeah, I'm not going to sound like an old man, but I, I the, the the modern ones. I'm like I'm I think they're just crying out for somebody to just come up with a song that just doesn't sound like the same old, you know, those Bond chords. Like I don't know. Are they, are, are, am I listening to something different, or is does each one just sound like a version of the previous one? <laughs> yeah, like um, Skyfall is the greatest hits of Bond themes, I guess. It's got a little bit of everything in there. Don't even get me started on The Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith. Don't even get me started, (laughs) Matt. It is awful. It is so bad. These these people have, they're given the opportunity and and clearly, you know, they they must be excited to think, oh, great, I'm going to write a Bond theme. And they just, it ends up being just utterly, utterly predictable. Which is what, which is what I like about Live and Let Die, is you know it, it's I don't know I I don't know what well I don't think he could have come up with a better song put it like that so I, I can't think what he could have yeah what he could how he could have improved on it I I do think it kind of lifts the it's one of the best bits about the film actually <laughs> um off the top of your head are there any other McCartney compositions that you could. Uh, force into being a half decent Bond theme. I suppose you maybe bit bop, yeah, yeah. No, maybe <laughs> some. I was just thinking maybe something off the you know the Abbey Road medley kind of. Not you never give me your money or 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 something like that is is kind of got the you know the feel of a. You know, it hasn't really, is it? <laughs> yeah, I kind of get what you mean. That kind of classic orchestral. You know, it's got that George Mine uh, backing yeah. backing to it. For me, two songs that I remember when I first did the podcast, I thought, oh, that kind of sounds like a Bond song, was Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, just with those, and uh, 1985, with those, like, yeah. classic yeah. McCartney piano code, it's just like, boom, boom. You know, I could, I mean, obviously, you'd change the lyrics for Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, yeah. but you could definitely just change those lyrics, and that would work as an exciting Bond theme. But the one that literally does sound like it could go into No Time to Die would be Blue Sway with the Richard Niles Orchestra from the McCartney yeah. 2 archive. It's, it, it's a lost Bond song to me, and I can even see the sexy blue lady silhouettes dancing whenever I hear it.
is it a coincidence that this is the first Bond film to have a largely black cast, yet it features a reggae section? Or do you believe the McCartney story that it was just a part of their reggae fandom? Oh, I think, well, I don't know. If you look, it, again, you know, don't rely on the sources are, but given that he says that he read the, the book when he, you know, when he learned that he was going to be writing the song, and I think the song was done and recorded by the time they started making the film. One of the only ones, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, no, I definitely think that he took, that he drew inspiration from the feeling of, you know, because they, they must have said to him, well, look, you know, this is broadly what's going to happen in the film is, you know, it, it's going to be in the Caribbean. And so there you go. There's your Thank God he didn't write starting a, point, isn't it? What if he wrote a song about tarot cards or something like that? Oh, mm. no, that could have been bad. But, yeah, it, but you know, that, 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 that's the thing. I, I, I think it's, um, I am a big fan of Paul's just, he, he take, you can see he takes a real enjoyment in, like, the craftsmanship of it. Or oh, here we go, I've got a, a bit like the spies, uh, spies like us. If you ever seen him, there's a little clip of him talking about writing that song, or, or the difficulty about write, trying to write the song off the title. Uh, the, I, you know, I, I do, you know, take some enjoyment in the way that Paul, you, you've given, he's given this kind of song title and, and what you can do with it. You know, come up with a song from it. I might like Spies Like Us more than Live and Let Die. That really? that, that <laughs> might be the most controversial thing I've ever said on this podcast, but songs being overplayed is a massive issue for me so unfortunately yeah, you, you know Live and Let Die is probably Paul's most played song outside of Beatle hits and maybe I'm amazed you know it, it's part it's been a part of his live show since he's been able to physically do it so like 76 and I can I can see why it has stuck around but it's definitely not one of my favourite Bond themes um, I don't think I actually mentioned it earlier but just make sure you're sitting down Matt when I, when I tell you my favourite Bond theme <laughs> Firstly, my mom's is The Living Daylights by Duran Duran. I've got no problem okay. with that. My favourite is Diner the Day by Madonna. Oh, I think you're uh, I think you're in a very small minority there. So. Um, <laughs> the World is Not Enough by Garbage. Fantastic track. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. Tomorrow Never Dies, Sheryl Crow. Another great track as well. I The Pierce Brosnan films all have bangers. The thing with the... Um, the more films as well is the um, you do get a, a bit of variety with the with the songs as well. But there's there's you know they, they, they don't really they're not all kind of taking their cue from from the song before them, which, which is quite good. So, so you've got like uh, you know nobody does it better, the Carly Simon one, and then you know um, Duran Duran and and uh, and Sheena Easton and things like that. They're all very different. Have you heard the Billie Eilish song yet? For yes. Any good? I don't think so. I was disappointed. Again, I thought it was kind of like could have been any of the last two, you know, two or two or three Bond song uh, Bond films. I mean, when Personally, when yeah. when Remy Malek walks onto screen, shouldn't they just play the Billie Eilish song "Bad Guy" instead? Well, yeah, exactly. Bum bum. I yeah. Just uh, change all of the lyrics and it'll work. Also, Matt, we cannot forget the fact that in one of the most meta moments in a Bond film, uh, when he goes into the second filet of soul re- uh, restaurant slash bar, uh, he actually watches a woman on stage singing the theme of the movie, Live and Let Die. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's just 
like you say, just a consequence of the fact that the um, the song was there, written and recorded before um, Beforehand, before the yeah. filming started. I suppose, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do that otherwise. If this ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give it a cry Say live and let die There's a part of me, though, that can just picture some big, fat, broccoli man going with a big cigar going, Wow, we've got to have a soul singer sing this song, see? And that is probably what the score would have sounded like had a lot of the yes. the money men had their way. I don't like it at all. <laughs> it's a, it's it's a weird time signature. Uh, it's not a rock song, and I think no, it's very it's a bit, bit funky, isn't it? Yeah, um, funk right to it. It's got a good rhythm, as Apu would say. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the score, the George Martin score? It's pretty good. It's, 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 if you can get hold of it, I'm not sure. I think it's one of those ones where you have to go onto YouTube. It's a pretty good, as far as Bond scores go, it's one of the better ones, um, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good listen as well. Yeah, Bond suffers from the fact that he's got so many iconic themes. Iconic themes that you don't actually hear in this film, funnily enough. I've read that once the Roger Moore films go on, they do start to bring back more of those iconic Bond soundscapes and stuff like that and it does become a little more familiar one of the things that I noticed quite starkly though George Martin never includes the iconic Bond guitar theme anywhere in the score yeah that is interesting yeah whether or not that was a conscious decision that he made or, or whether or not it was just the case of uh, maybe, trying to do his own trying to do his own thing I suppose yeah maybe the studio was like look we've got George Martin They'll write a theme so good that we, we, we won't need this one. Well, I think from what I read was that basically McCartney's... Usually it was John Barry doing mm-hmm. the um, doing the Bond scores, but McCartney's fee was so high that basically they, they weren't going to be able to afford anyone other than George Martin. <laughs> Not to put George Martin down, but I, 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 don't, I got the impression that he wasn't first choice. That's interesting. It's a shame, though, because... Like, compared to, say, Martin's Side 2 score for the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, this is just a, a little limp-wristed, I feel. Um, there aren't that many memorable music cues. A lot of it is very incidental, kind of family-way-ish music. Yeah, or, or, or kind of, um, you know, kind of a Shaft-style <laughs> wah-wah guitar and yeah, the car chase sequences and things like that. There's a whole lot of... Yeah, definitely. The voodoo tribal sequences, that's all scored by Martin as well. That They're probably some of the more interesting parts of the movie. Just to get into the headspace of how George Martin assumes like Haitian music might sound. But yeah, a, a big problem with the film is that the score isn't utilised enough. Um, there are, like I say, several protracted action sequences that feel incredibly cold without the, you know... But then again, Bond doesn't do anything cool enough in this movie to really warrant the Bond theme, you know? It's not like the intro to Goldeneye 
or you know, it's not like as I mentioned, him jumping off the cliff, revealing the, the Union Jack parachute. Yeah, absolutely. It, that that is, you know, obviously the film's got the little opening, you know, opening kind of three little snippets. Um, yeah, snippets, but but there's no, you know, opening Bond sequence, so to speak, which maybe, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, they, they'd have had to have come up with something not necessarily tied in with the plot, but yeah, it does kind of. You would have thought it would have been a nice way to reveal. Roger Moore as the next Bond rather than, you know, just kind of seeing him there in his dressing game. <laughs> you know what? Let's let's just talk about the intro to this film because it's a, it's very interesting. Actually, it's one of the few uh, title sequences that Bond does not appear in. The very first three scenes of this film instead focus on th- the murders of three British agents who are monitoring the movements of one Doctor Kananga. The United Nations scene starts us off and. Was I the only person feeling that this was one big North by Northwest reference? Uh, it looks very North by Northwest. Um, we even get the final scene on a train at the end. Uh, so I don't know if uh, Hamilton was specifically aping off Hitchcock there. It, it, it did feel like it. Matt, why is this the only death, though, that doesn't get a callback in the movie? The other two do, and we see other versions of them later. But we never mm. see Kananga using a high-pitched noise to kill anyone again. Well, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Especially, and, and you don't really see the, uh, you get, get the impression that he's like a technical wizard either. Um, or I suppose he, he has got these um, descending lift mechanism that he's got set up. Um, and he's got tiny uh, cameras <laughs> in coconut heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely an unusual, um, an unusual death. The next death uh, is in New, New Orleans. New Orleans. Um, the agent is stood outside the Filet of Soul restaurant, one of my favourite puns ever. We don't know it's the Filet of Soul at this point. I think we, we even get a shot of it. And the agent is knifed by an assassin as a classic jazz funeral procession goes by. And, Matt, this is the scene that I always remembered. Like, as a kid, I always remembered this opening shot mostly because I, I've got a terrible aversion and hatred of sashes. And the, <laughs> the band leader has the biggest sash you've ever seen in this movie, ever. And that always stuck out to me. And the idea is the agent is stabbed by one of Kananga's assassins and he's lying there dead in the street. And then the six men holding the coffin reveal that there's no corpse in the coffin. It's actually hollow. And then they place it over the agent and it somehow picks him up inside the coffin how does that coffin work matt Uh, there's some sort of straps or something that we're not seeing i think there's got to be something under there uh, i think the actor's um, holding onto a bar oh well yeah Yeah. i mean in terms of the prop Mm. yeah sorry i thought you meant in in either way (laughs) in reality uh, or within the movie it's ridiculous yeah Yeah. although I, i do think like like you say the callback i think that was really kind of well done the, you know the, the the way that it was the way that it was done so so you kind of were there knowing what to knowing what to expect um and, and the characters that just there waiting as he was before yeah when we go back to you know this scene and another agent is uh is killed they don't bother showing the whole the whole rigmarole of it it just uses the musical cues which is actually yeah. really really interesting yeah i think it worked yeah it worked it worked well i thought but there's also logistical issues with this scene. Like, I can understand that Kananga's got henchmen and stuff like that. But there's, like, 
50 people in this procession that all have to be in on it and on the pay as well. And, and presumably available at, at any moment. short notice. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot of... Uh, it's, a, it's a big production to... Uh, and, of course, like, you can see people like, looking on in the background. Oh, yeah, no, no, you... As well, it's like, well, hang on a minute, you just said someone knifed on the street. You could also see the fact that the procession is quite clearly in the script meant to trail off into the distance, but you can tell the blocks that are cornered off for the set and, like, yeah. the street's, like, dead behind the last person in the uh, parade. As a set piece, I thought, you know, it, it was one of the better, like you say, the more memorable ones from the, from the film and, like, from... Bond in general, I think, is quite well. It's remembered. a great idea on paper. It's not executed that brilliantly, but kudos to the to uh, the writer. There's only one writer on this movie, actually, because uh, well, we'll get to why shortly. Next, though, we've got the first of many scenes that literally had me wincing as I was watching it. Uh, we get the voodoo ceremony, and Matt, my God, was this scene meant to shock stuffy seventies white people? Like, everyone in this scene's black, they're clearly not Christian, they're sacrificing someone, there's a sexual element to it, there's a witch doctor with a goat's head on his head, and he's got a snake in his hand. This was the moment, and I posted this on my Facebook and on my, and on my Twitter when I realised, yeah, lads, this is going to be a little problematic. Uh, and, and I was quite shocked as to how many people on the Facebook and Twitter were like, why is this problematic, Sam? Um, I mean... Ian Fleming himself, born during World War II, he's got his own views and likely his own prejudices. But Ian Fleming did come from a world where England is literally at the centre of everything. And that's probably what doesn't translate as well to the modern Bond. The only thing that I did take issue with this scene, well, firstly, the guy who um, is playing the agent who gets killed. Apparently he was um, so frightened of the snake that he actually passes out in the take that they use. Like, he's just so afraid of that rubber snake. He's terrified of it. Oh, God. But just in terms of, like, you know when you adapt a, a book into a film, you normally end up having to cut characters here or there or combine characters. I have no idea, for the sake of simpleness, why the witch doctor and Baron Samady are not just amalgamated into one character. I don't know why there are two. They both serve yeah. the exact same purpose. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's a bit odd. The opening credits, though, what do you think about the sequence? You know, how does this compare to, like, GoldenEye or Casino Royale? Two of the best ones, in my opinion. Yeah, it's pretty standard fare, I suppose, for Bond sequences. Although the, the kind of the very first shot is... A burning skull? <laughs> yeah. Or, did I imagine it? Or is there, is there a clear nipple <laughs> no um on the left there's a lady shot from the front and there's definitely nipples in this movie yeah there's also nudity in a uh, quarrel's boat cabin when you go beneath the boat and rosie uncovers his gun and his hidden communication devices uh, there are a bunch of pin-up girls all naked on the wall that's right yeah and i was like ah, oh, that didn't make it past the censors did it but yeah, going back to the title sequence, yeah. I like that it's all achieved in camera, mostly. It's not special effects, it's not animation like in Doctor No. Yes, yeah. And if you had to say to me, Sam, what would a Bond voodoo title sequence look like? I'm guessing it would look like that. Still looks a little bit cheap, though. Looks a little bit tacky. Our opening shot of Bond as well isn't much better. Uh, he's just in bed with a bit of crumpet. 
But what I do like is that apparently she's a Bond girl from a previous mission that we never got to see. And again, this is coding for the audience. No, Roger Moore's an established Bond. There might even be an Italian adventure that you never saw. There might be a film out there somewhere for you to find. Yeah. M comes at the door. He informs Bond of the three assassinations and Bond's little Italian strumpet is hiding away. We didn't actually see Bond's flat up until this point, and we wouldn't see it again up until Spectre in 2015. And there's a, a term called the cinema of attractions. And back in the day, people would go see movies because the internet didn't exist. And, Matt, could you imagine how mind-blown people must have been to see an espresso machine? Yeah, there, were, there, there was a big uh, sequence there, wasn't there, of him, uh, you know, faffing around making the espresso while he's trying to talk to her. But yeah, I'd imagine it would have been quite, uh, seen as quite, you know, exciting and, uh, yeah, curious and uh, something, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, because I think that's what it would have yeah, it, but yeah, it is like you say. It is interesting to get to see uh, see Bond's uh, very very seventies apartment. Yeah, which literally looks like it could just be redressed as the set for M's office. Yeah, you know, every, everything's wood, everything's ornate wood. However, we do get Money Penny and M in the sequence. Money Penny looking a little bit past her prime in terms of being the sex symbol for the Bond franchise even though her and Bond have never had a tete-a-tete. You know, I do like their relationship in that sense. But we're missing Q. We don't get Q branch in this film. Did, mm. uh, did you miss that element? The thing is, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's one of those, you know, one of those things that makes the Bond film, makes it a Bond film, if you know what I mean. It, it, it did seem like a bit of an odd choice just to have M and Money Penny drop by Bond's flat. Um, you know, why, why, why they couldn't just... I don't know whether they were just trying to deviate from the from the being too formulaic, or you know why you couldn't just get a call and turn up to work and get assigned the mission like he normally does. Um, but yeah, no, there, there was no no opportunity really for old Q to uh, show up, and Bond's already got the um, already got the gadget watch. Yeah, no, I did like that. How that was clearly the gadget he was given for the Italian movie that we that that we never got to see because bond actually knows how it works already yeah he's not like no one shows him so bond if you press this button their head will blow up or something like like that maybe it's just sort of you know economical yeah uh, screenwriting or you know just uh, trying to do away with that with the, with the bits they didn't feel were necessary i read somewhere that there was originally going to be an opening scene with Quarrel and Bond where Quarrel shows Bond how the shark gun works that we see later in the movie. Oh, okay. And that does make sense, actually, because that shark gun is introduced in the last sort of 20 minutes. And it's like, oh, okay, Bond had this as well, apparently. Um, But we'll get onto that shortly. Yeah, so Bond gets his mission. He's got to see what this Kananga business is about. And he goes to... America, everybody! And this is pandering to the American audience through and through. I personally feel they're trying to legitimise this new Bond, so how do we do it? We take him to the States, you know? And then on his way to meet Felix Leiter, we meet Whispers, one of Kananga's main henchmen. And with a dart gun hidden in his car's wing mirror, uh, he shoots Bond's driver dead. And instead of the car immediately crashing Matt at 30 miles an hour, Bond takes the wheel and, you know, somehow still applies pressure to the accelerator. 
<laughs> and we get this in, intentionally dull action beat that ends with the lamest of lame duck crashes ever. Like, there's the, the idea of rising action in a film, and I feel like they intentionally messed up that stunt because it would have been too exciting too early on for the 1970s audiences, you know. They would have been blown out their minds. Speaking of Felix, though, Felix Leiter is a, quite a common name for the modern Bond fan. He's appeared in three of the, Dan, the Daniel Craig films, played by Jeffrey Wright, a really, really good actor. But as you mentioned, this was uh, his last feature film uh, appearance till The Living Daylights, where he is portrayed by David Hedison again. Honestly, though... I, I, Lighter might be my least favourite character in this movie. He's so annoying. Like, there are many parts of this film that are clearly hangovers from the 1960s Connery Bond era, but Hedison's acting style is one of them. You know, everything's stilted and clearly delivered in a way that other actors can spot their own cue to talk. Like, hey, James, you got to come over here quick. Yeah, yeah see? He, he almost sounds like Al Capone. I don't know, I don't know what's yeah. up with the... Uh, the uh, decision to portray him that way. And he spends the whole film either nagging James on the phone or picking up after him uh, after an action sequence and sending him on his way. I feel like if this was a modern Bond film, that character might just be Dame Judi Dench or uh, Ben Whishaw's Q, just talking to him over the phone instead, rather than having to have you know him physically meet up with Felix every five minutes. Yeah, definitely. These days, it's somebody, you know, behind a... Uh, computer screen. Somebody, yeah, watching a computer screen, uh, giving them the information. Then Bond is in New York. He's in Harlem. He follows the licence plate of Whisper's White Pimpmobile to a voodoo gift shop, which literally sells skulls on the shelves for rituals. And did you notice that the snake that Bond buys is basically the same snake that the voodoo guy uses at the start of the film. Like it's, oh, is it? Yeah, it's like a green and yellow snake. I'm not sure if it's a joke or if it's just a, one of the strangest coincidences. We also get one of my favourite quotes from the movie in terms of how dated and politically incorrect it is. Uh, Bond's like, yes, could you follow that car over there? I'll give you $20. And the guy's like, brother, for $20, I'll take you to a Ku Klux Klan rally. And it's like, oh my God, that's not funny then. That's not funny now. How did that get past anyone? Like, I remember watching Tom Cruise's The Mummy a couple of years ago. And it's funny you should mention ISIS. Like, that movie starts with an ISIS-like organisation destroying priceless historical artefacts. And I'm like, please don't remind me of these real-world troubles while I'm watching my escapist fantasy. Please don't remind me of the crippling racial tensions in America while I'm watching a silly Bond movie. It's so jarring to have those concepts thrown at you, especially when we're going through Harlem and unbeknownst to Bond, he's being watched the whole way. And there's a network of spies and agents and infiltrators at Kananga's disposable here. And it is incredible, <laughs> like the power they have. And, and uh, you know, it's meant to build tension to legitimise the villains. But they're portrayed as so ridiculously overpowered that, you know, when the time comes for Bond to start winning, they just suddenly turn to a bunch of idiots and it deflates the whole thing. Like, there, there isn't a genuine threat to Bond here. You know, we're kind of just going through the motions of villainy, which is not good for the reboot of this major franchise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I do kind of, uh, you do kind of get that feeling that he's never really too much under threat. 
Even when he's captured, like the 18 times he's captured in this movie, you're never too worried for him. Well, it's like any any time he gets in a car, which isn't the driver, he's you know he's basically (laughs) captured or you know tailed or you know he's he's not doing a great job of uh, losing the tail (laughs) at any point. They they don't make Bond look that competent in this film. Like in the way that all the Batman films have failed to make Batman a detective. This movie fails to make Bond a spy. <laughs> there is that one joke, it's like, a white man in Harlem? Great thinking, Bond. But it's like, no, no, James Bond would have thought of that. Of course he would have. He's, the, he's, the, he's a super spy. And the fact that he just walks in to the Filet of Soul restaurant uh, club and everyone stops and looks at him like he's a cowboy in a saloon, it's all just completely ridiculous. Bond wouldn't allow himself to be captured like that. And then he goes and sits at a booth and like an episode of Scooby-Doo, the booth rotates and spins around and and reveals that there's a hidden lair behind there for Kananga. And we see Whispers again. And my favourite henchman of possibly any Bond movie. Do you know his name? The guy with the claw. Oh, no, I was trying to, I was trying to think of it earlier. His name is Teehee Johnson. <laughs> and he's basically the odd job or the jaws or the knickknack of this movie you know the muscle but the memorably weird muscle like uh, we do get whispers who who can only talk like this your champagne sir you know it's all like that and i think there's a joke at the end when whispers tries to warn kananga but he can't because he's too quiet but it goes by so quickly and he's set up so poorly that there is no punchline Annoyingly, though, Teehee Johnson, like, he is set up in concept like the first Jaws, like this mechanical villain for Bond to fight, but he's kind of just portrayed as a guy who just coincidentally happens to have a claw for an arm, and uh, it's my favourite type of claw prop, because it's a type of prop where it's, he's, he's meant to have lost an arm or a hand, right, but his hook is quite clearly being held by a hand that's still attached to his body, and his right arm is a good 12 inches longer than his left arm. It's really distracting. Like, his right arm's got an extra point of articulation in it. It's like, it's got like an extra elbow. It's ugh, strange. And then when it's revealed in the climax that his entire arm is indeed robotic. But then when you see a close-up of the mechanisms, it is clear that that prop would not have the articulation required to accurately mimic a human arm. Like, it's hilariously bad. Then we meet the film's Bond girl, uh, Solitaire, in the background. She's reading her tarot cards. For some reason, Mr. Big's gangsters just let him flirt with her publicly for no reason. Yeah, okay. Bond kind of just gets straight into it, doesn't he? <laughs> no, no, he just he doesn't. he doesn't miss a beat. Like, he's potentially about to be slaughtered. It's like, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, you know? And he's, he's on there straight away. And it's sexual harassment, what he's doing, ladies and gentlemen. Bond would be reprimanded. He's sexually harassing poor Solitaire. Do you, do, do you rank her as a Vespa Lynn or more of a Christmas Jones? Yeah, she, she, she's not really, character-wise, really that memorable, really. She's not, not really got any sort of distinguishing characteristics. Yeah, all of her traits are things that aren't to do with her character, they're part of the plot, like, oh, she's a psychic. Okay, how does that affect her as a person? Oh, she's still just as weak and useless as every other Bond girl. 
like she's not like rewriting the book on acting or anything. Like I am glad that she's got a little more involvement in the story, at least in the first half when you know supposedly she still has her psychic powers. And I like the ambiguity of it. Like this is one of the well, I think the only Bond with a supernatural element to it. And you know we'll talk about Baron uh, Samadhi at the end. But do you think her psychic powers are meant to be real in this story? Because Kananga seems to believe they are. Yeah, it's, it, like you say, there there is that kind of element to it where you, you're never quite sure. Like the scene with Baron Samadhi later, you, you're never quite sure whether or not it, it's real or not. Yeah, and it does have this. Um, you mentioned Scooby Doo. The whole film has a bit of a Scooby Doo vibe to it really what what with the kind of you know the the island and the um the scare tactics being used yeah. <laughs> kananga would have gotten um, away with it too if it wasn't for that meddling bond yeah it's it, it, yeah it definitely um yeah does, does leave the audience unsure as to whether or not it's to be believed yeah but it's not doing that intentionally it's not like ooh, was travis bickle no insane at the end did the final last act of taxi driver really happen no it's not that it's poor filmmaking and yeah. it's like is he real is it not ah, doesn't matter let's get on to kananga it's like no 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 no. can we talk about the weird dummy of baron samadhi can we just talk about that for five minutes <laughs> no gotta press on and we do press on to mr big we finally get to see biggie smalls in this movie and rather surprisingly and i did smile when this happened, uh, he just says, can you just go and shoot Bond now, please? And I thought that was a nice little lampshade of the fact that villains always let Bond escape. But then I thought, hang on, is this a part on the filmmakers because they don't want Mr. Big being on screen for too long because of his terrible, terrible makeup? Yeah, could well be. But, you know, it's nice to see that a villain, at least for the first 10 seconds he's on screen, does the clever thing. Um, it's nice to think that, you know, he could have gotten rid of Bond in the same ease that he got rid of the other three agents. But then he just sends two goons to go and do it on his behalf. And Bond, <laughs> he attacks them with a fire escape, which I think is hilarious. And he does this yeah. awful jump kick, which only a 45-year-old man in the 70s could do. Yeah, it's this uh, part of the film that sort of, yeah, it, it, what would that, it's kind of heroin subplot. It does kind of feel slightly more like a... Uh gritty uh spy tv series in some respects one of the things that's not gritty is the setting though uh we we go off to the island of san monique and i did a little bit of uh, research on tvtropes.com which is one of the best websites for trivia about movies ever and it actually goes into detail why this place could not be called san monique so if it was in in spanish it would be santa monica and if it was in french it would be saint monique there would be the Santa Monique in there. So it's the Spanish masculine half of San and then the French intonation for the name. Like it's, okay. it, yeah, it's uh, clearly a part of uh, Ian Fleming's, oh, as long as it sounds foreign enough, you know, I've got to, I've got to get Bond on some sand. But yeah, he, uh, he arrives and he's a bit suspicious because his hotel room has already been checked into by a Mrs. Bond. And this is where we get to see Rog the Dodge shirtless. And Matt, you did not have to be Daniel Craig to be Bond back in the day, did you? Oh, no, absolutely not. No, definitely, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, no six packs in those days. Yeah, like, um, it's, just, it's just called Jason Bourne, the, like the, the, the fourth one with Matt Damon. And there's a shot of him 
And I think he's older in that than Roger Moore was when he filmed this. And he's just this unit, this tank, this giant, muscly man. And Roger Moore literally just looks like an accountant. <laughs> Maybe that's part of the appeal. Like, he's just like you and me. But Tom Hardy and Daniel Craig are not going to be that. They are just giant bulldozers of human beings. Do you remember in Casino Royale when the parkour guy's running away and he jumps through that tiny gap in the roof? And then when Bond's chasing him, he just runs through the wall? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that Bond doesn't do anything fancy. He just, like, he should just shoot people, basically, and get it over with. We also get the second snake in this movie, because this movie is obsessed with snakes. And, of course, Matt, as, as we all know, snakes will just attack humans instantly when put in the, in the same room. Exactly. Well-trained yeah. snakes. Yeah. There should have been a whole deleted scene with Whispers just, like, training his snakes. You've got to go kill Bond now, yeah? What? <laughs> also, Matt, can we just clarify that spraying a bit of aerosol fire on a snake will not instantly kill it? It's just animal cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just it. stamp on its head bond just stamp on its head and kill it instantly you cruel man yeah we did get to see quite a uh clear uh shot of the snake being put in alive as well yeah it's um it's not the most horrifying image in this in, in this film but but hey also uh when rosie carver enters the room uh the supposed mrs bond the double agent did you notice the obvious male stunt double that bond throws onto the bed like, it's really bad. Uh, oh, I he, didn't see that. He, yeah, he, yeah, he flips her. And even the hand that enters the room, I'm pretty sure it's a bloke's hand. <laughs> but yeah, we get another classic line from Bond. He goes, don't worry, darling. I'm sure we'll lick you into shape. Come on. <laughs> How are you not meant to laugh at that? <laughs> then the film sadly just becomes a bit of Bond wandering in the woods for a bit, which is terribly boring. And I think that the whole Rosie subplot is just a a way for the writers to delay Bond just taking out the bad guy. Yeah. Because there is no way that Bond can't just go straight to Kananga's poppy fields and just blow them up straight away. But no, we have to have this whole, ooh, who's who's this, who's that, what are their allegiances and stuff, and, you know, Bond reveals Rosie's a double agent very, very quickly, as we mentioned. And she, the way she runs into the jungle after seeing the scarecrow in that kind of mincing way, is hilariously silly. <laughs> <laughs> like, she almost sachets into the jungle undergrowth. <laughs> but yeah, this isn't that intriguing. We've had Bond wandering around looking out of place in Harlem. We've got him wandering around looking out of place in the Caribbean. Then he breaks into Solitaire's mansion, tricks her into bed with him. This is essentially statutory rape under the modern definition, but we're not going to dwell on that. Solitaire also, like, bemoans the fact that she can't read the future anymore. But she does neglect to tell Bond that fact before she does sleep with him. So I don't put the entire blame on Bond, rather shockingly, being how kind of cuck-woke I am, clearly. Another major change, though, was behind the camera. Richard uh, Maybaum, who had previously written everything from Doctor No to Diamonds Are Forever, declined to take part in this film because, and I quote... To process drugs in the middle of the jungle is not a Bond caper. Now, with that in mind, Matt, do you think Dr. Kananga's overall plot and his status as villain is befitting of a Bond movie? 
it does seem to be a you know a kind of a Bond trope that you've got this um, you know a villain on an island somewhere, and I think because in the book it's um, it, it's kind of Spanish um, you know antique trade coins you know gold coins that they're smuggling. And he wants to uh, flood the world's market with gold. Yeah. It's got like, the plot to gold, to Goldfinger, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The thing is, what, what, yeah, whatever the plot, it, I think it's fine to have a plot like that as long as you make the film interesting. You know what I mean? You know, the, the, the plot's only there to kind of uh, service the things that we want to see in a James Bond film, like the stunts and the, uh, and the glamour and all that kind of thing. So I think it works as a plot. I wouldn't say that um, Dr. Kananda's the most interesting villain in the Bond franchise, but um, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think they just failed to make it as exciting and gripping as it could be, really. Yeah, I mean, they don't do anything, they, they, they actually don't do anything with the fact that they've, they've chosen to make their villains like from this fake island. Like, there's no culture on that island, there's no reference to the fact that. Like, maybe Kananga might in- think Bond's racist, you know? There could be that element to it, and there's not. Like, Kananga literally could have been played by uh, Donald Pleasance and just be called Blofeld. He's got a fucking underground <laughs> cave at the end, for Christ's sake. Yeah, he. he you, um, you know when, like, uh, they were making Alien and they just wrote all the characters as generic people and then cast the best actors at the end? It feels like this is a villain that was just taken from another Bond story and then they happened to make him black. It, you know, it doesn't feel like they've actually bothered to do anything with it or, you know, add a bit of culture or add a bit of worldliness to the movie, like, especially in its portrayal of black people, like people from Harlem and San Monique, they're, they're all bad. And like even the San Monique police force are bad guys in this as well, although they do work for Kananga, which does make a little bit a little a little bit of sense and said policeman chase bond and solitaire onto a double decker bus and this is apparently san monique has bridges apparently <laughs> on this tiny little island and the bus is cut in half the main reason i wanted to bring up this chase scene though why are there ramps everywhere in james bond movies matt is it just so cars and bikes can drive off them into into the ocean uh, pretty much yeah i think <laughs> there's clearly there's a uh... Maybe a lot of uh, building work that's uh, n- not quite yet finished that's uh, going on in a lot of these places. That one copper on the motorbike, he launches himself very intentionally into the ocean for no good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least the one who skids off his bike and falls. That looked a little legit. Also, I think the stunt of Bond handbrake turning the bus is more exciting than the crocodile sequence. Like, just the fact that Bond goes... On a giant bus, I thought that was like, that was that was quite a cool image. Then we go back to New Orleans. We meet the marching band again. Then Bond goes back into the the second fillet of soul club. Uh, he doesn't go in the in the booth with Felix because he again he says I took a nasty turn in a booth once. Oh no, sorry, I think I've skipped the um, needlessly destructive and unfunny airport chase scene I with Mrs. Bell in the in the plane. And I get the setup of the joke. Then when it cuts to the head of the airplane like lesson school, he's like, oh, I've got to go now. I've got to go teach a lesson. Why was Mrs. Bell in an operational airplane unsupervised? It's the biggest plot hole in the movie, Matt. It's the biggest plot hole in the movie. 
But yeah, that's a, a chasey with no score to it again. It just hap- just happens. It's very matter of fact. Yeah, just just causing havoc. Then they end up getting captured again by the same taxi driver from Harlem, I believe. Yeah. This is the third time that Bond's got in a car <laughs> and is either tailed immediately or the driver is uh, a bad guy. Like, if that was Daniel Craig, he would have just kept firing his pistol until the glass broke and he capped the guy in the head. Like, he would have just put 15 rounds in his skull. Uh, but Roger Moore, get, a high, get a higher car, you know, just drive it yourself. <laughs> Bond's a big... Yeah, that's the thing. In, in, in you know, Bond's a, uh, portrayed as, you know, a big, you know... Gearhead, yeah. Yeah, pretty much in, 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 the, in the books and, you know, likes his uh, sports cars and stuff like that, so... Uh, no, but when, when Bond gets to New York, Felix has him be picked up as well. Mm. So, yeah, there, there's an awful lot of Bond being chauffeured here. Then we get to the crocodile scene at, uh, at the real-life Mr. Kananga's crocodile farm. Apparently, it, the original scene was just going to be Bond would use the magnetic watch to get the boat over to him, but they thought that was quite boring. So I do like how they tie the boat. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah, come Yeah, that down. was good. Yeah, I was like, oh! They're thinking it was that... No, Matt, I love movies where the audience has to figure out the problem in the same way the characters do. Like Saw, for example, the first one. When you watch that movie, you're like, right, how would I get out of this? And when Bond is on that little island, surrounded by crocodilians, I am sat there thinking, right, how the f- what, what the fuck would I actually do in that situation? I think one of the parts of Hollywood magic is that the water's not very deep at all, is it? It's probably about six, seven inches deep. But you think, you know, he's surrounded by six feet of water. And then this is where... I I don't actually like this stunt in retrospect because three or four poor crocodiles had to be tied down to the floor for the stunt to work. And, like, could you imagine, Matt, if a giant crocodile trod on your back six times in a row? Like, you'd probably be pissed off as well. (laughs) Yeah, I think I would be. With Disney's fantastic Lion King animation, though, I don't think this stunt will ever need to be done again, which is a good part. So, yeah, Bond escapes the <laughs> the crocodile drug factory, which is a weird sentence to say. And as you mentioned, the uh, drug manufactorum has no security measures for the fact that there are a, a thousand crocs and alligators surrounding it. And also, it seems like, like Matt, whenever I get a new job... I'm a real stickler for finding out where the fire safety meet point is, you know, during an alarm. You know, make sure you meet in the car park, blah, blah, blah. There is no health and safety regulations at Kananga's drug factory. They all just run out, like, arms waving in the air, screaming. Very um, unprofessional outfit. Then that brings us to the boat chase scene. Matt, why does everyone in the Bond world leave their keys in their vehicles? Yeah, unless Bond, yeah, unless Bond somehow knows there's a hot wire boat, but yeah, I guess they're uh, not expecting a, uh, anyone to just rock up and uh, Jump drive in. it away. <laughs> yeah, which which he does, and like I say, it's a very competent action sequence if you chopped it in half. Yeah, it, it does go. It does go on. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I'm trying to think of other good Bond chases, like older ones, but to be fair, car chases have never held that much excitement for me mostly because it's a it's a very 2d type of chase isn't it yeah i was gonna say the one yeah the one in um the spy who loved me is, is, a, is a good one one of the better ones i think if you get a chance to uh to 
watch that in, in the little uh, Citroen. Oh, okay. That sounds cute. Uh, <laughs> there was also a scene in this chase that had me howling. Like, Bond's boat is shot in the, uh, in the motor at the back by, I think the bad guy's name's Adam, the one who steals Billy Bob's boat. Yeah. And Bond literally starts banging on the, on, <laughs> on the control board like it's a broken laptop or something. Like... Yeah, just keep banging it, Bond. That'll that'll fix it. Don't you worry, son. It seems like a very non-Bond moment, like something that Roger Moore Im- improved on the set that day. Then, Matt, obviously we meet Sheriff J.W. Pepper, the comic relief, as some people may call him. My theory is that he's there to kind of balance out the horrendous racial stereotyping of the script. What interests me more, though, Matt, and you hinted at this earlier... He comes back in the man with the golden gun. Yeah, obviously uh, got good audience feedback, I suppose. That is literally insane. Like, I thought, oh, maybe this is just because the it's just the one writer, you know, the Doctor No, Thunderball guy, he doesn't want to do this kind of thing. But no, when the writer comes back for the man with the golden gun, he's like, yeah, man, the Sheriff Pepper character, he should have been in the novels, you know? He's, he's such a rich character. <laughs> but yeah. It's literally a subplot. Pepper has a subplot within the chase, like with his brother-in-law and all the blockades they set up and stuff. And it takes a huge amount of screen time away from James himself. And I don't know about you, Matt, but in my head, the Bond film should be from Bond's perspective as often as possible. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like, do you remember when M has a standoff with the bad guy, Inspector? Yeah, it feels a bit weird, a bit off. Like, I don't mind cutting back to Q, because he's the man in front of the computer, like you say, but, yeah, it should be Bond all the time, you know? Then, basically, we have to wrap up the film. Um, Bond captures... <laughs> Bond, Bond is captured again, essentially, and um, he's, it is revealed to Kananga that Bond has indeed slept with Solitaire. Oh, my God, we haven't even talked about the reveal! Right. Oh, yeah, of course. Matt, did you ever have any suspicion that Mr. Big and Dr. Kananga were the same person. Spoiler alert. Um, I kind of, yeah, before I watched it again the other day, I, I, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And only when I kind of saw the basically the grey face. It's grey, isn't it? What's yeah. it with that makeup? <laughs> it, it, did, did, did I then sort of think, yeah. Yeah, very odd. Now, credit where credit is due... The bit when Mr. Big starts ripping off his own face, I did think, fuck, that would have blown my mind in 1973. That's really good. Even if Mr. Big's mouth and eyes didn't really move at all. And, you know, you can tell with Mr. Big, he's always shot from afar or very quickly. You know, you're not allowed to see him for that long. The main issue, though, is that they don't go far enough with the makeup, I think. I think he still looks too much like Kananga, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, they should have given him a big afro or something ridiculous to really make him... It's the same build, out. pretty much, isn't it? And... And, and he's, like, 12 years younger than Roger Moore as well. I think he's the youngest Bond villain ever. Right. Which, which makes less sense when you hear that he actually controlled Solitaire's mother as a psychic for a period of time as well. Yeah. And if you lose the psychic power when you lose your virginity then that had to at least be 23 years ago because of how old Jane Seymour is. Maybe she's 18 in the movie, I don't know. But yeah, that would mean Kananga's got to be, you know, a 50-plus-year-old guy, I guess. But they just brush that over. Um, so yeah, 
because she has slept with Bond and she's broken the sacred rites and upset the gods and all that, Tosh Kananga insists that she is about to be uh, sacrificed by Baron Samadhi. We actually meet Baron Samadhi earlier in the film at a nightclub where he's essentially an act, like he's playing Baron Samadhi as this role to entertain tourists. Yeah. Now, Matt, do you see this as he is an actor in the employee of Kananga to keep up this ruse of Baron Samadhi, or if the last scene of the film is to be believed, did you give any credence to that? He might actually be the, you know, the demigod of graveyards and death. Yeah, there's definitely something. I mean, for starters, I think I've always been slightly frightened by this character. I great design as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Art, art. But, yeah, no, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good question. It's, it's a good question, and it does. Uh, what with the bit that we're coming up to, where he basically loses half his half of his skull, I, I've I've always thought that 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 it was that it was a super that it was like a supernatural being or something like that. It was only watching it this time around that I thought, oh, is it meant to be a model or a dummy or I I don't know really. Yeah, no. but no, I, I've I've definitely always thought that there's. There's meant to be a kind of a right, Your Honor. Yeah, I'm going to present some 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 evidence now, Your Honor. Right, so Baron Samadhi comes up through a mechanical technological hole in the floor. Yeah, and the lady with the machete taps it three times, which Bond notices is the signal. Now, does that mean there was a henchman with a fake plaster of Baron Samadhi put it on the stand and then it comes up because the hole. They don't even attempt to put, like, dirt on the hole or anything. It's clearly, like, a, a little leather flap with some yes. glass painted on it. But when they show the dummy the first time, it is the actor. It is yeah. the human actor stood there, very still, as if he's a mannequin. And he just opens his eyes, his mouth doesn't move or anything. But, again, maybe this is the, the benefit of HD viewing. It's clearly the actor. However, when Bond shoots him, it cuts to the kind of papier-mâché plasterboard dummy, which, for all intents and purposes, does look very good, actually. And I think they even superimpose real human eyes onto it at one point. So they're really blurring the line between fiction and reality at this point, which is something that Bond's never done. And that was some of the stuff that actually, you know, I thought was quite interesting. But yeah, uh, Samadhi is not the one sacrificing curve. For some reason, it's it's the witch doctor again. Go back to my point from earlier. They should be amalgamated into the same character. And hang on, Matt. Why does Bond have a forty-four Magnum? Yeah, I, I read that the producers wanted Clint Eastwood to play Bond, and I can just tell that one of the producers just loved Dirty Harry and wanted yeah. Bond. Like Bond's got to have a big gun too. It's not like he has to hide a small gun to be a secret agent or anything. No, no, he's going to have a huge hand cannon. And then, we're go- and then we'll dress him like Steve McQueen in Bullet, that kind of black turtleneck and the huge holster on his side. Speaking of the revolver in this scene, though, um, this was posted on the Surrey News Live website, 21st of September 2020. Officers were called to a burglary in process at a house in Aldersbrook Avenue in Enfield, North London, on the 23rd of March, around 8pm. The Met Police said their investigation found that the suspects had broken into the back of the premises and made off with five deactivated firearms, all of which had been used as props in various James Bond films. 
including one Beretta Cheetah auto pistol, one Beretta Tomcat auto pistol, one Llama 22 caliber pistol, all featured in Dino the Day, one Walther PP featured in A View to a Kill, and one Swith & Wesson 44 Magnum revolver, serial number N60304, featured in Live and Let Die. So, even if I'm not the biggest fan of this film, there are clearly still, still some very passionate collectors of the merchandise for this film, clearly, and all the props. Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's an interesting choice. Definitely an interesting choice of weapon. It's, it, it's, Matt, it's, it's too big. Like, it, it's the size of a Bond pistol with the silencer on. You know, it's it, yeah. it's it's a ridiculous barrel, but it is quite satisfying when he shoots Baron Semedy in the head with it, and he, he just blows half, <laughs> half of the head off. And I'm like, Ugh. there's a point at which you kind of half think he's basically going to massacre the whole uh, <laughs> the whole crowd there. Yeah, he does shoot one of the crowd that tries to stop him rescuing uh, Solar Solar Solitaire, and he and he puts eighty eight <laughs> calibers worth of lead into the poor bloke. Yeah, very quickly um, ends the party. Yeah, and despite the fact that they outnumber Bond several hundreds to one, everyone's like, oh, no, we'll just leave him. It's fine. Then Baron Samedi comes out, like we say, there's a load of build-up, and then Bond just punches him and he falls in the coffin of snakes. But after all of that, and they go down Baron Samedi's hole, um, who misses, <laughs> suddenly we're back in familiar Bond third act territory. And just as we get to this scene I want to to read a quote from Roger Ebert's 1973 review because he describes this scene perfectly he says live and let die does to give it credit have one basic Bond scene that always seems copied from the previous Bond movie the penetration of the underground citadel this scene always begins with Bond pressing a hidden lever or discovering the secret door then there's a shot of a vast underground cavern which is filled with uniformed functionaries who hurry about on mysterious unspecified scientific errands bond slips unobserved from one hiding place to another is discovered eludes his pursuers watches as six hide goons hurry past and then goes through another door and unexpectedly finds the villain waiting there for him like how well written is that that is exactly what happened <laughs> pretty much nailed on yeah and we even get a scene where Kananga's like oh mr bond i'm glad you could join us which is just a, a, a blowfeld line it would have been nice, maybe, if like he'd gone, oh shit, or something. It's <laughs> like he was like, oh god, Bond's here! Ah, just, pa- just you know, panic a little. So yeah, Bond and Solitaire run into Kananga and his group of cronies. Once captured, Bond then de- kind of deduces like Sherlock Holmes how the whole heroin smuggling trade works. Um, Matt, I'm sure you've seen on like Crime Watch these huge underwater watertight heroin rockets. That's a that's a common feature, isn't it? Well, yeah, you know, it's. Uh plot device i think yeah it's just like if you, but they're, they're doing heroin they're going to tackle it but they don't do it with any sort of re- realism like oh guys heroin shipped to the u.s in underwater rockets and stuff like that that's that's obviously how it's done but but then again when you find out that like the cartels build submarines and stuff maybe this isn't that ridiculous so then whispers ties up bond to uh the was it like a a winch or a crane or something and this is where we get the villain lowers Bond into a pit of some sort of animals cliche. There's, he's been lowered into barracudas before, I believe. What other animals does Bond have to fight? I mean, he has to fight crocs in this movie. Uh, there's a Komodo dragon in Skyfall, I believe. I'm trying to think, I'm not sure. There have been. Uh, I'm sure there's sharks in, in other movies as well. 
Yeah, it tends to be a lot, a lot of a uh, lot of tropical fish in the uh, in the book in the books anyway. A lot of um, big big interest in sort of diving and uh, dangerous dangerous sea animals. It's clearly uh, Fleming's interest rather than uh, rather than the readers. And then when you see the sharks again, it kind of reinforces that this is a very pre-internet movie. Like you can imagine people in '73 being like, "Blimey, Governor, look at them sharks up there on the big screen! Look out, Bond!" You know. And now it just holds zero wow factor at all, which is a shame. Although, it, you know that bit when Kananga starts cutting Bond's arm really lightly with like the, the most superficial cuts ever. And it's clearly, you know, those knives in Hollywood that have blood that comes out the end. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, he's clearly like drawing red, red marks onto Roger Moore's <laughs> arm. But like when you contrast that against the scene where Daniel Craig's having his testicles smashed in by Le Chiffre, you know, yeah, it's a. Uh, Apples and oranges, I guess. What do you think of Kananga's death scene? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you, I, I'd like to say that you know, like I, I said before, maybe modern uh, high definition televisions, you know, aren't the best for it. But I mean, surely even back then it was a little bit ridiculous. Like, even the quality of the film grain suddenly drops for that one shot. So I don't know whether it's because it was a miniature or because they had to, I don't know, film it frame by frame. I don't know, but the film physically looks bad in that. But yeah, uh, Bond puts a a shark pellet inside his body and then that makes him float up to the ceiling like he's full of helium or something. Because that's how carbon dioxide works in these movies. And he blows up with no gore whatsoever yeah i i i took i took it more that um basically the the build-up of gas basically just launched out of his backside and uh sort of launched him like a rocket oh oh like oh see i thought it was like um he was a balloon and he was um he was floating up but i like the idea that he might have farted himself and then, <laughs> and then exploded farted to death yeah farted to death he always did have an inflated opinion of himself and then they and then they run off and it, what's nice is that we actually get a little denouement um with this it's kind of similar to uh, the kind of after-action sequences you got in, like, uh, with the George Lazenby film. You know, it, it ends with, like, a marriage and stuff, and you think it's all going to go one way. The fact that it ends on a train as well is, is another one of those North by Northwest references that I couldn't help but notice. But rather than ending on a shot of a train going into a tunnel, uh, very subtle there, Hitchcock, we get the return of Teehee Johnson, the man with the hook, and my gosh, I was so glad to actually see him return here because um, he's one of the few characters in this movie that I kind of enjoyed. And unfortunately, rather like Baron Samadhi, it just turns into a really shitty, poorly choreographed fight. And then Bond rips his jacket open and the mechanics of that arm are just awful. <laughs> and... Um, I think like he he snips two of the wires and then that gets his hand stuck on the rail, and then what? He just pushes him out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Not the uh, not the most graceful of of uh, bad guy deaths, I guess. Definitely, uh, Bond was being very ableist there, you know, with his two functional arms. No wonder Teehee got got his ass whooped. Then basically, Bond tries the whole lucky at cards and lucky with love idiom. Rather interestingly, in that scene, uh, Solitaire beats Bond at Rummy, and apparently she's the only person in the entire series to ever do that, which I thought was quite, in, yeah, until Le Chief does it in Casino Royale, and it's like a major plot point, but uh, I think IMDb trivia may have neglected that point. Um, 
And we end on the final shot uh, in front of the train with Baron Samadhi. He's there. And I must admit, you know, hearing his <laughs> laugh again, that was quite spine tingling. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's a good, good way to end it. Yeah, it, it ends on a high note and it's a very lighthearted. Apparently, though, part of that was due to them having to appease local voodoo traditions as to not offend anyone. Because as they state in the film, Baron Samadhi cannot die. And there were even rumours that he might return like a Jaws type figure in like several films. I don't know how they would have done that because he's so clearly linked to the island. Although I had a game called uh, James Bond 007 Nightfire on the PlayStation 2 when I was a lot younger. One of the better Bond games. And in the deathmatch arena, uh, you would always play as the classic Bond characters. And I was always Baron Samadhi. It's just a, it's just, it's just a great look. Yeah, no, it's good. It's, it's a shame in a way they didn't sort of uh, bring it back. But like you said, I'm not sure uh, w- where it would have fitted in unless he was on holiday, isn't it? Yeah, or it's something like Bond then goes to Africa and it's like, oh no, can we not do this, please? I don't, I, I don't want to see Bond punch a tribesman or something. That, that's what the next Bond film needs, I think. Bring back Baron Samadhi. You know, if he, if he can't die, then uh, you know, theoretically, he should still be alive. So uh, it's perfect. Perfect. That'd be time. cool, actually. Maybe, ooh, send in your casting ideas who you would uh, want the modern Baron Samadhi to be. Uh, send that to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com, which sounds like two very different ideas altogether. But yeah, Matt, there we are. That is Live and Let Die. I think, I think we've pretty much covered everything there. I think the only thing we didn't talk about was the shark pellet gun and the exploding sofa, but oh well. Uh, thank you for coming on, bro. I couldn't have done this without you. Yeah, no worries, mate. Thank you very much for asking me. And uh, yeah, I think uh, overall I had an enjoyable time watching it and, and talking about it and uh, hopefully uh, have a chat again. <laughs> well, you know what, folks, you know, because me and Matt have done this, it means you don't have to. You don't have to go and watch Live and Let Die. It's not the classic that is made out to be, at least from my own personal opinion. But yeah, Matt, that's it. Hopefully we'll see you very soon. I'm sure we'll think of another uh, esoteric topic for us to cover hopefully Mark Lewison does another show in Birmingham soon we can have another pint until that time though dude I'll see you around the clubs cool take care and there we are folks that is where my conversation with Matt Phillips more or less ended thank you so much to Matt for once again coming on the show he's a real stalwart veteran of this poor or nothing project hopefully I'll be able to see him again sometime soon after lockdown and paying back for that beer he bought me at Lewison's Hornsey Road. Thank you very much for listening, folks. I hope you've all enjoyed the show. Please let me know your thoughts on Live and Let Die, especially (laughs) your thoughts on the film. Was I a bit too harsh? Uh, I'll be glad to uh, read some of that out on the show. On our next episode, send that into paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hit us up on the Twitter as well, at McCartneyPod. Please check out the blog, which is pumpkindypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube by typing in the name. Please leave us a five-star review. And as always, please consider joining our Patreon page. I'm sure Diddy Lane has already been playing us out, folks. Uh, Next episode, I'll be joined by Ethan Alexanian of the Fans on the Run podcast, where we're going to be discussing Wings Greatest, the 1978 Wings compilation album that's not entirely a Wings compilation album. Can't wait to talk about that. See you all very, very soon, folks. Keep listening to Paul. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna. Take care. Bye-bye.
Thank you. 